There's a there there are baseball cards on Patrick's refrigerator of when he played Tucker baseball as a what ten year old. Yeah, and they have his stats on the back where it says three foot eight, yeah, thirty nine pounds. Patrick Ollinger, yeah. left field. <laughs> and the best part is we actually fudged the numbers because I was playing football in the fall, so they were like, we got to boost it up to like 30-something. Like, you can't rounded, advertise just how tiny you are. I was rounded up to the close to 38. Yeah. <laughs> Back to the most pleasant exhaustion podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. My name is George Dart. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance coach and athlete here in Atlanta. Uh, I say here in Atlanta, but we're actually coming to you from Patrick's house in Decatur, Georgia. Yeah. Um, where, you know, this is the first time I've been in Patrick's house. I get to see the books he has on his shelf. I get to see his little Christmas tree with its one ornament on it that he won at a race. <laughs> yeah. No need for anything else other than that. It's almost a sarcastic remark. Absolutely. Like Charlie Brown's Christmas tree. <laughs> I think I think that you should you should maintain the purity of the tree by by only putting ornaments that you win at races on the tree. Oh, then after have to more Christmas races. Yeah, I suppose. Well, <laughs> you know, presumably they would be giving you ornaments, right? My wife, actually, now that I think about it, has won an ornament at a race. I've never won an ornament at a race. But oh. she, she won one at the Jackrabbit 5K in Austin, Texas. All right. What was the ornament? A Jackrabbit? <laughs> <laughs> it was like, actually, it was cool. It was like a little, uh, it was a little, like, piece of rock that had been polished up and had a sticker on it. So, yeah, it was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I Yeah, I, I tend to pick the races where they give you a trophy or a plaque or a trophy and plaque or, you know, I don't, you know. Mm-hmm. so, but she, she ends up getting the ones that are cool. I love like unique prizes at races. Um, but anyway, so yeah, looking at Patrick's books, he's got the perfect mile. Great book here. And, uh, Fantastic book. So, and, uh, and several other things as well. So, so yeah, very good. Uh, well, thanks for having me here, man. Thanks for being here. You survived the snow this weekend. I did. I did. How about you? You had it much rougher than me because you were a little farther north. Well, you know, it's funny. The the National Weather Weather Service said that that this was, for whatever reason, it was a type of storm where even within a small area, there was a huge variance in the amount of snow. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in town in Atlanta, most people got like four inches, something like that. Um, Out in Marietta near Kennesaw Mountain, uh, where we always run and where I live, um, we were more like nine or ten inches. Um, We got socked. Yeah. Um, and the weatherman all been, oh, it's going to be a dusting, and we're so accustomed in Atlanta to just be, you know, something that, you know, doesn't accumulate on the roads or anything else like that. And then nine inches later. <laughs> yeah, and then the apocalypse came. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 40, 40 hours without power meant that we had to throw away all this food and everything. It's just, yeah. There's nothing, I have found that there's, it's extremely frustrating on so many levels to throw away food. I mean, you're losing money. Mm-hmm. There are starving people. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a, just a waste, mm-hmm. you know, but... Anyway, anyway, enough about that. Um, let's talk about some news of this week, man. Why don't you go first? Uh, sure. So the big news from this week, and this is a kind of last-second change in terms of what we want to share for this <laughs> week, because it was just announced yesterday, and that is that Shailene Flanagan is indeed running the Boston Marathon. She is. It's been speculated for about a year or so. People are like, surely she can't you know, end on any other note other than Boston. We, we, we said it in the last podcast. And... She kept saying, well, New York should be my last competitive race. I'm going to go for the gold as if it is my last race. And you could kind of see there's a change. Like, it was New York is going to be my last race. Well, I'm going to run it like it's my rest, last race. <laughs> well, let's assume it's going to be my last race. What if it isn't my last race? And then finally, 
Uh, it came out, um, Boston released their elite field, and she, of course, was one of the elite runners. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be a strong group this year. Uh, it is going to be a strong group. I was looking at them yesterday. Uh, one of my athletes actually uh, sent me a message on Facebook. Uh, there was a screenshot of the announcement on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the screenshot of the announcement on Twitter said, here are all the elite athletes. And it didn't list the elite athletes. It listed their Twitter handles. <laughs> that is fantastic. Uh, yeah, Welcome to so, hashtag 2017. So, at Abdi Runs, at A Bumbalo, at Dina Castor, at Des underscore Linden. Um, but anyway, no, but Abdi Abirahim, Andrew Bumbalo, Dina Castor, who's the American record holder. Yep. Um, but she's now a master's runner. And so I, I assume she's probably going to be going for the American master's record. Um, Desiree Linden, uh, former Desi Davila. Um, uh, Dathan Ritzenheim, mm-hmm. um, so former Olympian and great runner. Galen Rupp. That's right. Uh, winner of the Chicago Marathon. Yeah, and, and winner of the Olympic trials as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and, and silver medalist in the 10K um, and silver bronze medalist in the, in the Olympic Marathon mm-hmm. uh, is going to be, be running the Boston Marathon. That's cool. That's um, yeah, that's right. And, you know, given the rivalry that's kind of already started to bubble up between the Oregon Project yeah. and the Bowerman Track Club... Um, this is going to be one heck of a race. I mean, in the females yeah. specifically, it's going to be a battle between Flanagan and Hesse. So we'll yeah. see how it yeah. turns out. Yeah, Jordan Hesse, who who she had a fantastic race last year at Boston as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, so uh, Kellen Taylor, Molly Huddle, yep. so uh, American record holder in uh, in the ten thousand meters, uh, mm-hmm. set at that brilliant. Uh, Race. I'm trying to look for the right word here. That brilliant race in 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 Rio in the 10,000 meters, which was the greatest 10,000 meter race, which I talked about on another podcast a, yeah. a few months ago. That it was so good, it's hard for us to appreciate sometimes for some of the reasons I'm going to talk about here in just a minute. Sarah Hall, Ryan Hall's wife, uh, Ryan Vale, mm-hmm. um, Shalane Flanagan. Yeah, and then a couple of ones I don't actually recognize in term because I don't recognize what their their Twitter handles are. Um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, at Skip Tubi. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't. Yeah. I can't I make the connection. Yeah, who that who is at Scott and Ready? Yeah, I don't know who that that's is. Scott, Scott Smith, a two oh, twelve marathon. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's good. So, so Scott Smith might want to change that around a little bit. Oh, but yeah, I actually the very first one I mentioned was Abdi Abdi Rahim, who's now forty one years old, um, and uh, and is still running like two twelve mm-hmm. as a as as a Masters runner. You know, he's a year or two younger than me. And granted, his PRs are a lot faster than I am. But holy crap, be running that fast as, as an over forty guy. Uh, amazing yeah remarkable so all that is to say is i'm i'm looking forward to 2018 boston uh here within our group in atlanta and itl we're gonna have a fantastic group of runners going up to boston this year to those of you who have never been to boston maybe you've only heard about it or seen about it on tv it is one of the great sporting events in america and even in the world um i can tell you i've been to a super bowl super bowl is i shouldn't say it's nothing compared to boston but it really I would take Boston over the Super it's Bowl. It's nothing any day. compared to Boston. <laughs> I mean, it is the energy in the city, the energy that you get when you just walk to restaurants before the race and after the race. I mean, people who are teachers and lawyers and doctors who maybe aren't running, they all know it's a big event. Yeah. The whole city turns out for it. Anybody from Boston knows about the marathon, even if they're yeah. not runners, don't yeah. know runners. Totally. And the whole week of the race, you you get to talk to other very dedicated athletes about their journey to Boston, and everybody has a unique yeah. uh, trek to that starting line. I've never met yeah. somebody who ran that race who didn't have an interesting story to tell. Yeah, no, it's I, so I've run it once. Uh, I ran it in 2000, 
uh, and I was living in New England at the time. Mm-hmm. And so the the long story short, testament to how much it's changed over the course of the past 17, 18 years, um, you know, almost exactly 18 years ago, it's, 19, it's December of 1999, um, and I'm living in New Hampshire. I was only there for a few months at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of my colleagues at the school where I was working said, hey, you're going to run the Boston Marathon in April. And I said, no, I don't have a qualifying time. She goes, well, go get one. And I said, okay. And yeah. so, so, so I trained for a couple of months, and I was in good shape already. And so, so yeah. I did a couple of long runs and went out the last weekend in February, got a qualifying time, signed up the following day, like March 5th, something like that, uh, and then competed in the race on April 15th, six weeks later. Wow. Uh, and now you have to get your qualifying time you know, a year ahead of time, and you have to yeah. sign up by September of the year before for the April race and everything like that. So, yeah, how quickly that race has grown. Yeah, and now even when they say register September 15th or whatever the mm-hmm. date is, if you tried September 20th, it's already closed. Yeah. I mean, that's it. You oh, have yeah. a couple of days to get in. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I essentially signed up for it as if it was like your local road race. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm super glad that I did in retrospect because – because of what you just said. It's such a huge cultural event. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I didn't realize what a big deal it was. Um, mm-hmm. And then, but literally every day for the last two weeks leading up to it, they're talking about all the morning shows and, and, and everybody in the school where I worked knew about it and everything um, and, and wanted to talk to me about it. It was cool. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. Great event. Um, so also in news, less uplifting news perhaps, um, but, but I alluded to it just a second ago. Uh, you probably saw the news uh, uh, out of Switzerland where the, the, mm-hmm. the IOC had a, uh, had a press conference last week and they announced that, uh, that, that Russia was going to be banned from the 2018 Winter Games. Yes. Um, those are in February, March, I want to say. Yep. Um, they're, exactly in, right. they're in South Korea. Um, and uh, and in Pyeongchang, South Korea, as a matter of fact. Um, so, kind of backing up just a little bit, you might remember in May of 2016, there was a former head of the anti-doping lab in Russia, a guy named Grigory Rodchinkov. Um, he blew the whistle on the whole thing and said that, hey, during Sochi, we were literally passing clean urine samples through the wall, um, and we tampered with more than a hundred different samples, and and basically just just laid it all out for the WADA. And they made a they made a. a documentary about that mm-hmm. uh, that Patrick actually pointed me to on Netflix called Icarus. Mm-hmm. Um, fantastic documentary. If you're interested in endurance sports on any level, fantastic. Even if you don't care so much for the Olympics specifically, highly recommend it. Yeah, and it totally goes in a different direction than what I expected. Because mm-hmm. um, it starts off with this guy, this this journalist, this filmmaker named named Brian Fogel, like trying out some endurance, some, some performance-hanged drugs. He's just trying it. Right. basically, to see what happens. And then he established a relationship with this guy, Grigory Rodchinkov, exactly the time that Grigory decides to blow the whistle. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes that story instead. Um, really kind of interesting stuff. But anyway, summer of 2016, uh, WAD released a report on the rushing doping scandal during the Sochi Olympic Games of 2014. Uh, confirms all the things that Grigory Rodchinkov said. Um, uh, and then basically said, like I said, that the anti-doping officials helped to actually dope their athletes with the help of the Secret Service, the, the Russian Secret Service. Mm-hmm. Um, and then right before the Olympic Games, only about a month before the Olympic Games in 2016 in, in Rio, uh, the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, basically punted and said, hey, well, you know, it's too big right now. We're just going to let each individual sporting federation decide what they want to do inside their sport, which is a total abdication of their responsibility. Right. Um, and to their credit, track and field, which is governed by the IAAF, um, said, we're not having any Russian athletes. And so no Russian athletes were able to compete in track and field in the, the summer games. Um, there were Russian athletes, for example, in the cycling race, because the UCI, the governing body of cycling, said it was okay. Um, but, uh, but anyway, last December 2016, 
the Russians basically admitted it. They said, yeah, we did it. But hey, it went in state-sponsored, so Vladimir Putin didn't know anything about it. Right. Um, but, but, um, but they admitted it. So anyway, so this week, the press conference in Luzon, Switzerland, um, the, uh, the IOC said, because of this systemic doping issue, um, uh, we are not going to allow any Russian athletes to take part in the 2018 Winter Games. Um, athletes can compete under a neutral flag, mm-hmm. um, and they'll be referred to as OAR, um, an Olympic athlete from Russia. Um, as opposed to like an independent Olympic athlete, something like that. Um, if they win, their anthem won't get played. So the Russian anthem won't get played. Um, now, the IOC did say, hey, if we end up working it out with them, end up reaching some deal by which they disclose all of these various things, by, by the end of the Olympics, maybe we'll let them march as Russian Olympic athletes under their flag at the closing ceremonies. Um, but for now, the way it looks is that, that they're actually going to be banned from the Games. Uh, they also gave a lifetime ban to the country's deputy prime minister, a guy named Vitaly Mutko, because um, they said that he was the head of the whole thing. Uh, they present, prevented him from having any involvement in the Olympic Games forevermore. Um, um, and then he, interestingly enough, is actually the head of the Russian committee that's in charge of the World Cup next year, because that's going to be in Russia next year. Mm-hmm. And so now everybody's looking to FIFA to say, say what's going to happen with the World Cup? Are you all going to leave it there? And, and FIFA said in a statement last week that the IOC has nothing to do with them that it's going to have, quote, no impact, unquote, on its preparations for the tournament. Um, and that begins next June. Um, they were also fined $15 million, by the way. Um, so they said, you know, we spent all this money investigating you. Now you're going to have to pay for it. So we'll see whether they actually do, in fact, pay for it. So so we'll see. What do you think, man? Oh, gosh. Um, there's a <laughs> lot to unpack here. Um, so first of all, it's not a secret. This is almost the, the world's worst-kept secret that this was going on. Right. Right. Um, and then when the documentary came out, it really was just, it articulated what people kind of knew mm-hmm. to, to some degree. Um, and then it, it's been interesting to see kind of the reaction from the track and field community. So the mm-hmm. first thing that came out was, hey, this is, like the initial, after the initial news, I think people's reaction was, hey, this is great. We're taking progress towards cleaning up the sports. And then people were thinking, well, wait a minute, this is a little bit, we're giving the IOC a little bit too much credit here. Mm-hmm. It's, this is yeah. too little, too late. They were told about it, and they let it happen anyways, and kind mm-hmm. of, as you said, punted mm-hmm. because they didn't want to have this, you know, scandal kind of taint the games. And it's and it's also, and and let's be honest, it's also the Winter Olympic Games. Yes, it's not the Summer Olympic Games, and 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 not to take anything away from cross country skiers and figure skaters and all that sort of thing, but but the participation rates around the world and the viewership around the world and the money that's generated mm-hmm. for the Olympic movement is significantly greater in the Summer Olympic Games than in the Winter Olympic Games. Yes. I mean, it's going from NFL revenue to NHL revenue right. in terms of kind of scale. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, and that is no small coincidence. Mm-hmm. That And that was another thing people pointed out is, wait a minute, you know, this is... You know, this yeah. this is not a coincidence. Now, what is interesting is banning... Yeah, not, not like they just suddenly started doing it in Sochi and then hadn't done it in other things for other Summer Olympic Games and other games, yeah. Right. Now, what is interesting is to see how this will affect the ratings mm-hmm. here within the United States. Um, because I can tell you, NBC signed up for this deal thinking, we're going to broadcast Olympics where it's the United States versus Russia, United States versus China. Mm-hmm. You lose that enemy, mm-hmm. are people going to tune in when they see... Mm-hmm. You know, U.S. athletes go against, you know, Sweden, for example. We don't quite have the same rivalry <laughs> with them. So that will actually be another kind of angle of this is what will happen to the ratings. Yeah. You know, it's kind of yeah. the, the inverse of what's going to happen to the ratings with the World Cup without the United States in mm-hmm. it. So both Fox with the World Cup and NBC with, 
the Olympics are kind of they're going to be hurt. Their, their numbers are probably going to dip in both of those events because with the World Cup, you're losing the hero, so to speak, with, mm-hmm. for an American audience. Mm-hmm. And then with Sochi, you're losing kind of that, that common enemy or that rivalry. Yeah. I, should say, I shouldn't say enemy, but you're losing that rivalry that you know Americans can kind of galvanize that around. nemesis. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's a good point. So, so w- which will ultimately draw us more, you know? Something right. without a nemesis or something without a hero. Right. Um, yeah. I, I and I, I think it's sort of interesting that the the fact that the that the World Cup is going to be in Russia and it's like and and it's the same guy that was in charge that's now in charge of the FIFA thing is is or in the charge of the World Cup was was the one who was supposed to be overseeing the anti doping during Sochi. I, I can't. That's hard for me to go over. <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, essentially the same they're making the defense lawyer the judge and the jury so it's a little say shady yeah well and the thing too and and this is you know and we we can talk a whole lot more about performance enhancing drugs in in sport generally and but but specifically in track and field um and in cycling too it's obviously a huge problem as well and and this is not to to excuse any of the, the the rampant drug use that's taken place in both of those sports but i submit that there's not there's not more drug use in track and field and in cycling than there is in, say, pro football. Uh, um, yep, I was about to bring up this very point. And, Go ahead. And, and, and we end up, people, people, oh, you know, all those cyclists are on drugs. Oh, all of those, 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 those track and field athletes are on drugs. No, we end up kind of fighting back, pushing back against some of the stuff, and we catch and we publicize and we sh- publicly shame some of the, the doping athletes. And so it ruins the reputation of the sport. Whereas if the sport's just like, oh yeah, no, we don't use it. Nobody uses it. Yeah, it ends up getting this clean reputation, like baseball, for example. I mean, it's right. just ridiculous. And and I have a couple theories on that. So one, my first theory is, so let's say like basketball players. I'm just, I'm picking just a random example here, mm-hmm. or I shouldn't say random, but a, you know, theoretical one. Mm-hmm. Basketball players are on performing enhancing drugs. Mm-hmm. LeBron James still has to make the shot. Mm-hmm. Right, he still yeah. has to still dribble to the, the basketball. There's still hand-eye coordination. Still have to hit the fastball. Right, so mm-hmm. there's not a direct correlation to performance mm-hmm. per se. What it, what it does in football and basketball specifically is it keeps the horses on the track. It mm-hmm. keeps the players on the court, mm-hmm. on the field, which is why you know. And there've even been polls that among viewers that say, if my guy's taking it and it just keeps him on, keep going, <laughs> you know, keep going. Yeah. But in track, when you Dope. It has a direct correlation mm-hmm. to measurable performance. Mm-hmm. So you can now say instead of running this time in the 5K, I'm running this time. Yeah. So it's a much different feel than you know just keeping somebody going. Or maybe it adds three meters to your to your baseball so you're to the, your you know distance from where you hit the ball. Yeah. So that's one big point. But see, but see that point to me, and I totally agree with you. That's a big point. Yeah. I just think it's bogus. Oh yeah, because, because because okay, so yeah, you have to hit the baseball, and I agree with that. That's a good point. But the 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 guys who are the sprinters, for example, who have been caught doping, and they they ran you know nine seven, they would have ran nine nine without that, right? You know what I mean? And so, so so they're they're obviously really really good already too. It's not like you know somebody who's on the couch then uses performance drugs and then gets gets an Olympic medal in, in the hundred meters. That's not how it works, right? And so if if you kind of make the argument that oh well baseball you need this base level of skill and then the doping takes you to a higher level, you can make the same argument for track and field. Mm-hmm. You still need this base level of, of ability to be able to to get on the track and to run as fast as they ultimately run, mm-hmm. um, whether you're doped or not. 
So yeah, and what's interesting too is I think where people start to get uh, I shouldn't say bent out of shape about it, or when it starts to bother people is when it affects records. Mm-hmm. It's like in baseball, oh, totally. they were fine with it until Barry Bonds hit seventy, and then it's like wait Barry a Bonds, minute, who was clearly on drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. So then that's when people start to get a, a, you know, get offended by it. Second point is in cycling and track, you're rooting for an individual. Mm-hmm. In other sports like Atlanta, I just want Atlanta to win. I yeah. just want the Falcons to win. Yeah. You are rooting for a team. You're, as Jerry Seinfeld would say, you're rooting for laundry. <laughs> and so then it's more. Wait, I don't get it. You're rooting for laundry? Yes. Because think about it, like I'll root for the Falcons. They'll turn through new players every three years. Yet I continue uh, to root for this team. <laughs> the only consistency is the uniform. Uh, okay, you know. <laughs> so that's why he says all you're doing is rooting for laundry. That's um, funny. Okay. So and then there's the, also the gambling aspect, yeah. right? If you win me money, mm-hmm. I'll you know I'll root for for that athlete, that quarterback, etc. For yeah. as long as possible. Yeah. And so 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 what you're saying is that people have more. Ma- they have more to lose if if we if we expose doping in baseball and basketball and football. Yes, both in terms of the money that they they are making personally off of the games and and in that your heroes are destroyed. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, I want to debunk that, but I think you're probably right, particularly as far as the money goes. But I mean, if if you know the guy. By the way, I'm not defending. <laughs> I'm just saying I think I think this is where yeah. you can see the difference. No, I think that I think but I think the difference is important because I think there is a double standard. But mm-hmm. but I, I yeah, I mean, I feel like if those if those so if I think about the people on my wall in my in my workout room, mm-hmm. right? So Emil Zadopek, Meb Kofleski, Eddie Marks, Steve mm-hmm. Prefontaine, and then a poster that has Kennedy Sebekele, Haile Gebrselassie, and Mo Farah. Mm-hmm. Right, all together. So those are the people on the wall, and there's a couple pictures of me too, <laughs> but, but not, not next to those guys, over them actually, <laughs> in front of them. Yeah, yeah. strategically phrased like, yeah. Oh, yeah, catch up, Mo. Yeah, yeah no. like looking back. <laughs> no, I uh, uh, no like pictures of me crossing finish lines, but those are actually behind me. The ones that I look at while I'm working out that are you know inspiring to me are the are the the, the great athletes. If I were to find out that one or more of those guys were doped. Um, I feel like I would lose something. I feel like there there would be there would be disappointment there. When Lance Armstrong came out and admitted, I mean, um, not that I was a gigantic Lance Armstrong fan, but I was a fan. Mm-hmm. I wore a Livestrong bracelet, and that was that was disturbing. Yeah, you know? and so. that may be partially because in our sport, like an endurance athlete, you're almost trying to mimic the athlete to some degree. Yeah, nobody's watching the NFL and then okay. saying, "I'm gonna." get crushed by a linebacker here Saturday afternoon after watching the game. And it's going to be awesome. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. no, true. Yeah, you definitely, like when you're you're climbing one of the big climbs up in North Georgia or something like that, you definitely think, oh, you know, get inspired by Lance Armstrong. Yeah, you definitely watch those videos on YouTube to get inspired before you go out for a race or something like that. Yeah, I don't imagine that that you would watch a whole lot of, you know, guys getting tackled to get fired up for... Uh, your, your your touch football game in your front yard or something. <laughs> your Thanksgiving, yeah, <laughs> yeah. At least I hope not. Jeez, <laughs> if you do, you might need to reassess your uh, your Thanksgiving activities. Um, all right, let's talk about some research. Um, so, you want to talk about the first piece of research or me? Uh, sure, I can go ahead and start us off. All right, go ahead. Um, sorry, I pulled it up right now. Um, so, this is a pretty interesting one. So, according to a study released by the Mayo Clinic, low cardiovascular fitness is associated with higher health care costs. 
Well, yeah. Which is... <laughs> and Well, here's the interesting part. And then improving cardiovascular health may not only improve your overall health, but also lower health care costs to a disproportionate degree. Here's some okay. numbers. Subjects in the lowest quartile of cardiovascular fitness, which was like VO2 max, like how good you are, okay. like endurance sports, had approximately $14,000 higher overall health care costs per patient and that's even after they controlled for demographic and clinical characteristics. See, now that's huge. You're talking about per year, right? Per year. So, so, so somebody who's who's effectively out of shape, their medical costs are fourteen thousand dollars more per year, even after you control for things like poverty and mm-hmm. all that other sort of thing. Yeah. So, uh, if you need some extra motivation for <laughs> uh, signing up for that twenty dollar five k. There you go. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the targeted ads that always pops up on my Facebook is is about health insurance for runners. Have you seen those? Yes. Health insurance for runners. And I'm not going to plug them because they're not a sponsor of the podcast here. But it's, it's like, can you run an eight-minute mile? Then you should be paying less for health insurance. I would say the authors of this study probably agree with that, right? Yeah. Um, and it's funny, too, because I, I think it would be cool if they, they were to dig a little bit more into the data and say, okay, what are the health costs? Mm-hmm. Because, okay, so I have a boot on my foot right now because I'm injured. I have mm-hmm. an Achilles issue. Um and and insurance helps pay for my chiropractic visits, mm-hmm. you know, during the like like that's where my insurance costs come in, right? You know, or or you know when I got run over by a car a couple of years, I mean, you know, I had an emergency room visit there, right? Um, right, and and they had to stitch me up. You know, I I I've broken bones from cycling before, um, uh, so it would be kind of interesting if if they kind of dug into the data, so. You know, endurance athletes and those with good health tend to have more traumatic injuries. <laughs> yeah, I, I almost wonder if there's a, a steady improvement until you get to like the top percent or so and the people that are putting too many miles in. <laughs> yeah, right? Right. And then yeah. it's like, okay, now you're back to where you were. Yeah. yeah. Well, that actually sort of segues a little bit into into what I wanted to talk about with the one piece of research that I, that I had this week. Because I think that, that sometimes we tend to kind of polarize a little bit with, 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 uh, when we think about research. And so we tend to say... Oh well, you know, multivitamins are, are good for us. I'm going to take a whole bunch of them. Well, if you take a whole bunch of them, multivitamins can actually be bad for you, right? Um, and so we talked just on the last one, uh, the last podcast about sitting, um, and we talked about lifestyle differences mm-hmm. between younger uh, runners and older runners and that sort of thing. Um, and then so big, so much over the course of the past couple of years, you've heard the the phrase "sitting is the new smoking." Yes, you know that that sitting causes you know a whole host of of uh, issues. Well, you would think that okay. Well, sitting is so bad for you. How do you fix it? Stand. Stand up. Yeah. Right. So it so, goes. Yeah. If sitting is bad for me, then standing up must be good. Mm-hmm. Right. And so rather than sitting all day, I'll stand all day, and I'll be a, a healthier, more well balanced person. Um, well, there was a study that came out just this past September um, in the uh, the American Journal of Epidemiology. Um, and it was uh, it was a study done by the Institute for Work and Health in Toronto, and it was a pretty massive study. Um, not pretty massive; it was massive. Seven thousand three hundred twenty people, uh, half men, half women, um, that they they followed for twelve years, um, and they looked at all of this uh, this national health data and that sort of thing. And they said, okay, let's look at the job type of these people, and let's graph that against their medical records on heart disease. Uh, about three point four of those people had heart disease overall. And they classified their job types into five different types. Sitting, standing, accommodation, standing and walking, or other body positions like crouching, bending, something else like that. Um, and what they found is that people working in standing jobs, so jobs you stand like being a cook yes. or, something like that, or, or a factory line worker or something like that. So or a teacher. So, or a teacher, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, a high school teacher. 
Mm-hmm. Um, people working in standing jobs were about twice as likely to develop heart disease as people working in sit- sitting jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so they had about 6% of people that were working in standing jobs ended up getting it versus only about 2 to 3% of people that were, were in sitting jobs all day. Um, and just like you said, the relationship held true even after adjusting for different confounding factors like body mass index, other physical activity, the physical demands of work, and all of that sort of thing. Um, they said it's likely to a result of blood pooling in the legs and then the increased stress of pumping it back up to the heart that over time can, can create stress that can lead to heart disease. Um, they said that combination jobs weren't really all that different from, from uh, seated jobs, uh, but they found that men with combination jobs were less likely to have heart disease and women with combination jobs were actually more likely to have heart disease, uh, which is sort of a strange twist there inside the data. Um, so not totally sure what the takeaway of that is, except to say that you shouldn't be thinking of this research or any research or anything that we talk about in a super polarized way, i.e. if sitting is bad, then standing must be good, right? Yeah. Um, because as this study demonstrates, and it's, again, a massive study. It's not like they studied five people. They studied 7,320 people for 12 years. Um, if if uh, just because sitting's bad for you doesn't mean that standing all day is really good for you either. So. Yeah, I, so I have a couple takeaways from that. One, I actually interviewed a lot of teachers, and this was before the study came out, mm-hmm. and a lot of them said they had to retire, mm-hmm. not because they want, they had to end teaching mm-hmm. they, or they didn't like teaching anymore, mm-hmm. but because of actually the physical demands of being mm-hmm. on their feet mm-hmm. all day. Once you hit a certain age, you can't yeah. you know, be on your feet and walking around yeah. nine hours a day. Yeah. And that was, this was several years ago about the and like, time. And like elementary school teachers are having to like crouch and bend and all yes. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that that has always kind of been in the back of my head when I read that you know we need to have the standing desk, etc. Yeah. Uh, the second thing, I, and, and when you listen to research, as, as you mentioned, sometimes you also need to think about it, right? You can't just say, you know, this research found, you know, there are problems from sitting, therefore I'll just stand forever or I'll never sit. <laughs> you need to you need to really kind of take it into context, right, yeah. and think about things. Like yeah. to, another classic study was there was. It, it, they found that we needed, I think, 64 ounces of water per day, the average person. Mm-hmm. I thought, 64 ounces? That's the eight, eight, eight glasses of water a day. Eight gla- yeah, what are we, yeah. a fish? <laughs> and then, and I was like, that can't be right. Uh-huh. Like, there's no way. <laughs> and then, like, eight glasses. What are we, fish? Yeah, and then, it, and then it, they found, oh, yeah, well, you need eight glasses, but you're going to get half of it by eating an apple. Right. Like, oh, well, okay, so I don't need to be chugging a glass of water an hour. Right. Um, and I kind of had the same reaction to the standing study where it was like, okay, surely maybe we should just go, if you have a sitting job, go for a walk every mm-hmm. out for two minutes, every hour or so. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, and we talked about last week with the, with the last podcast with the, the, we talked about how in the lifestyle differences mm-hmm. that, okay, so, so when you're, you know, a college student, so you sit in class for an hour and then you get up and you walk across campus and then you sit down for another class for an hour and then you get up and you walk across campus. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, we wouldn't be suggesting there that, that if you're in a college class, you should stand up the whole time, like in the right. back of the room. Right. right. Um, I also thought, by the way, just as a side note, the, the you know, Anthony Bourdain, mm-hmm. that celebrity chef, I saw a thing one time with him where he was talking about how he went into a New York restaurant and uh, he hadn't been in a restaurant, worked as a line chef in a long time, but mm-hmm. he did it for like a charity event. Like, oh, come in and Anthony Bourdain's going to cook your dinner tonight. Um, and, uh, and he couldn't do it anymore. He said, like, the bending down to get things from below. Right. And he said, like, in order to re- even, like, reading the orders, he couldn't read them because his mm-hmm. eyesight was bad. 
And so, yes. so like same sort of thing that 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 a job that you wouldn't necessarily think of as being physically demanding, i.e., being a chef, is very highly physically demanding. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And vision was another thing that came up with the teachers too. Actually, what's that? The vision. vision. So having to like kind of you're constantly looking back and forth mm-hmm. between the whiteboard and the kids, right. and then you reach a certain age, and all of a sudden. Mm. you get dizzy kind of looking back and forth and you can't quite yeah. read what's on the uh, whiteboard. Yeah. That's when you uh, that's when you leave the high school classroom and go get a college professor like, you know, one of your podcasters. hey <laughs> Dr. Darden. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, that's not the reason why I became a college professor. I'm fully capable physically of still teaching in the high school classroom. There, there's other things going on there. Um, but that's a whole different podcast entirely, not just a different podcast episode. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, well, the topic of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's get into that. So we have talked a couple of times. Um, you know, Patrick is is uh, as we said is going to be taking a more permanent role in the podcast. But but um, when you and I got together and we talked about Chicago, we talked about the different systems that you train in different workouts. And then last week we talked a little bit more about you know last time last podcast we talked a little bit more about the the different systems that you train. You you refer to them as buckets a few times. Yes, um, which I think is a great way of looking at it as well. And you can use more more. Uh, technical name like substrates and all that sort of thing but but one way or another the point is that that there are certain things that as endurance athletes whether it's runners or or cyclists or triathletes or whatever it's to be there are certain things that you are always trying to train um and so patrick and i in talking about that said why don't we actually just hit the reset button or hit the rewind button and take it all the way back to the beginning and just talk about the primary things that you are trying to train when you are getting ready to to do a race um and so what is it that that's deeper and more important than just being fit and being in shape so so in talking about that we're going to talk about endurance lactate threshold uh vo2 max um and economy we're mm-hmm. going to talk about those four things and and um again that's endurance lactate threshold vo2 max and economy kind of what those are and because those are the things we actually go about and train so endurance sure and just to also add one other note, we thought it was important because the language for training in endurance sports can be quite jumbled. For sure. Right? If you go to different... So the language in endurance you know, athletics, is it kind of developed over a period of time, right? While Arthur Lydiard was developing his methods in Australia, you know, the Germans were developing their, their method over in Europe, and Americans like Bowerman, et cetera, were also kind of developing their language, their system, um, so you can kind of tell that the, the language used among like exercise scientists, endurance coaches, it's a little jumbled and sometimes people think, wait, VO2 max, I haven't heard that. Or right. my coach calls it, you know, aerobic capacity instead. Right. Is that is, right. is he wrong? Is it it's it's not anything like that. It's kind of all cobbled together from various sources. So yeah. we wanted to kind of define some of the terms that we use quite often and then also just know that if you see a term or you hear a term today or you hear us go over a term that you haven't heard. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it, that's probably the reason why because yeah. it's not a mutually exclusive kind of finite set of uh, yeah. definitions yeah, here. You, you probably have heard of it. Yeah, um, you, a lot of times, you know, people will get on on forums on Let's Run or yes. on on Slow Twitch or something like that, and they'll argue about training. And it and I, I swear, forty percent of the argument that sometimes can get super contentious is just literally a disagreement on terminology. Yep. Like one person will be like, "Oh no, you really need to work on your lactate threshold." And the other guy says, "Oh no, no, the more important thing about lactate, the more important than lactate threshold is muscular endurance." That's the same thing. Yes, <laughs> right. Yeah, and 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 oh, you really need to work on your stamina. Again, that's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, literally, people will be arguing about what's more important when they're literally making the same argument, mm-hmm. but they're they're just getting bogged down in terminology. 
Right, right. So today we're going to talk about kind of the four key physiological elements that you need to build up when training uh, for an endurance sport. And we're going to start with kind of the most important and kind of work our way to the tip of the pyramid, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So the first one is aerobic endurance. And this is essentially your body's capillary base for transporting oxygen to your muscles. Okay, to be an effective endurance athlete, you want to get as much oxygen as possible to your working muscles. And you do this by building up red blood cells, and you build up red blood cells by running easy mileage. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is kind of what many people refer to as base training. Mm -hmm. It's where you just... You build up that aerobic base so that maybe if you start out and you can only run three miles, eventually three miles feels easy, right? It's something you can do without putting too much stress on your body. Um, and really, this is the most important system you can train when training for a marathon or a triathlon or any kind of endurance uh, event because you're tr all you're trying to do is maximize the amount of oxygen your body can transport to your muscles. That's why at ITL we constantly stress easy runs mm -hmm. you know you don't have to run fast all the time you can't run fast all the time you shouldn't run fast all the time the key is to build up that base to build up those capillaries that kind of build a network of highways throughout your muscles so that you can easily get oxygen from your lungs to your heart to the working muscles that will kind of power you across the finish line mm -hmm. and it's kind of a, one thing I, I like to say is you know, when people start their endurance journey, so to speak, when they first run their first race, their first 5K, maybe their first triathlon, they start out with kind of a small motor, right, to kind of get them powered to the finish line. But when you're building up that aerobic base, what you're doing is you're just building a bigger and bigger motor so that then you can kind of move forward and power your way to the finish in a much more efficient way. And that's really important because the more efficiently you can get oxygen to your muscles, the the easier it is to run at a certain pace. Mm -hmm. And what you're doing when you build your aerobic base is you're essentially just changing your body's construction from the inside out. You are changing it at the cellular, cellular level. You're adding mitochondria to your cell. You're adding blood vessels and capillaries so you can get more blood to your muscles. You're adding red blood cells so, you could, so that blood that you're carrying has more oxygen in it. And you're just kind of increasing the overall efficiency. Your body moves oxygen from your lungs into your blood and then into your muscles. And all of that happens at the microscopic levels, so it takes time. Mm -hmm. It's not something you can do if, if it's December tw 12th. You can't start to build up that base efficiently for a January race. It takes time because mm -hmm. it takes a while for your body to kind of build up that base and really kind of build up that internal motor. Um, so that's really one of the most important things we, we talk about when we talk about training for an en endurance sport. And, and to be clear about that, too, um, and two things I'll add to, to Patrick's excellent uh, description of that, too. One, he used, and, and this is in the name of terminology. So, so, so as we just said that terminology is important, I suppose, mm -hmm. in the front of my mind here. He mentioned, like, building that aerobic base. Well, oftentimes you'll hear people talk about the base training period. Mm -hmm. and so you need to build a base for four months, and then you're going to get into your race build and your race-specific period and all that sort of thing. So people have different terms for that. Even during the build towards your race, you're still going to be doing the vast majority of your running at an easy pace, mm -hmm. um, at that aerobic pace, at a conversational pace, they would say. Mm -hmm. um, you know, The vast majority of your riding is still yes. going to be at that conversational pace, that zone two pace, um, if you want to think about that. Somewhere between about 60 to 70%. 
um, for all of those reasons that, that Patrick just mentioned. Um, you know, different sports have different things. You and I have both read that in running, about 80% needs to be aerobic. Yes. Right? Um, and so, and the reason for that, of course, is that, that um, endurance is the most important of these systems. Now, um, these are the different races that you do and the different races that you're training for. They that will influence which of these factors are the most important. Mm-hmm. So if you're doing a longer race like a marathon, an Ironman, lactate threshold stuff is more important. If you're doing a 5K or a mile, VO2 max stuff is more important. Um, but I'm here to tell you, we let off with endurance because it's the most important of all of them, regardless of the races you're doing. <laughs> yes, it really is. Yeah, I mean, um, 97% of 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 the energy that you use in in a marathon is aerobic. Mm-hmm. i.e. it's from from doing aerobic work um, and building up that 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 aerobic uh, system through through zone two endurance work um, even if you go all the way down to somebody who's racing a mile that's still 50 percent aerobic yes it is um, and so so um, even if you're like oh well, i run a 5k so i don't need to, to to do as much easy running yeah you do because a 5k even by the most generous es- estimates is about 70 70 to 80 percent aerobic um, and so 70 to 80% of your time needs to be spent building that system that you're going to be using during that race. Um, yeah, and in the aerobic base, to kind of also clarify that, that's really kind of built up via activities that require a lot of oxygen over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it's if you maybe you can't run three miles, you can walk a mile, run a mile. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, being on your feet and using your muscles for an extended period of time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um even taking a step farther, I mean, some of y'all have, have, have seen when you look at like Mo Farah's training or Shalane Flanagan's training or mm-hmm. Galen Rupp's training, and you see that they run 120, 140 miles a week, mm-hmm. um, which is incredible. They don't run hard any more than you probably run hard. Mm-hmm. Like um, the amount of hard running that they do is probably less than 10% of their total running mileage. When, they, when, when they're talking about running 140 miles a week, well over 80% of that is not at a hard pace. It's, a, it's yes. at an easy conversational zone to pace, and that's because the endurance is the most important thing. And that's definitely something that's hard to wrap your head around, when, or at least totally. for me at least, when I first started running. Totally. right? You start off in other sports, I'm soccer, football, baseball, etc., and it's go hard, go home, no pain, no gain, uh, leave it all out on the field every time, that kind of a mentality. Right. But in running, if you are, if you are killing yourself three, four times a week, you're training other systems. Mm-hmm. You're tapping into your lactic threshold. You're tapping into your VO2 max. You're tapping into your running economy. But when you're tapping into those systems, you're not building up your aerobic base. And that really is the most important system when we talk about these long, sure. extended races. Mm-hmm. Um, you're benefiting when you run fast, when you train fast. But you're, you're checking off different physiological checkboxes right. when you're doing those types of runs. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is why we always have to run easy and focus on... The aerobic capacity because it really is the kind of foundation for those other skill sets mm-hmm. you know if you can't get oxygen to your muscles for an extended period of time mm-hmm. uh you're going to be in a world of hurt so to speak <laughs> yeah for sure yeah um totally agreed so so by all means that's the most important one i think mm-hmm. i've told you the story before about i had an assistant coach or i had i was coaching a high school cross country team several years ago and they they were underperforming basically. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't figure out why. And I was looking at the weekly schedule and I was like, you know, we have this easy day here and we have this right and, and, and just kind of looking at the various systems and weighing it all out and came to realize that, that just through talking to them 
mm-hmm. like and, and trying to realize why it was that they were underperforming, that, that the assistant coach had been taking them out on what was supposed to be an easy day and making them do hill repeats. Oh, boy. And, and that had thrown off the whole week. Yeah. <laughs> um, because so, so on a day when they were supposed to be doing endurance work and running easy, he was tapping into those other systems. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was throwing off everything. Yeah. Um, and they were, they were underperforming as a result. Only one workout a week being switched out like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he thought he was from that no pain, no game camp. Yeah. You know, he had grown up uh, playing football and soccer and all that sort of things. Like, all right, we're going to go out and run hills. Then we're going to stretch. And then, I mean, that's just, you know, the way he thought about it. Um, I get it. It's counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. That that run slow to run fast. What? Like, yeah. like oh, I'm going to get faster by running slowly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Yeah. And the other important point that I think you mentioned, which you know is especially important with high schoolers, aerobic base that takes years mm-hmm. to develop. Totally. So like I know a lot of high school training programs when they have their first week of practice in June, they say, look, we got to do aerobic. We got to focus on aerobic endurance for the next three or four months mm-hmm. we'll get to the other stuff towards the end of the year but right now we got to put in the that's miles what, that's what the good programs do we got yeah we got to put in the miles so to speak mm-hmm. because i mean the aerobic endurance that's almost like index investing you're get a you know a small return over that kind of compounds over a long period of time but you can't do it at the end of the year and then expect much of a return it's got to be right. something with you put in the miles right. very early on because like i said it happens at the microscopic level mm-hmm. right you're your body's not just going to build these tiny capillaries and, and you know increase the number of red blood cells in a week. Mm-hmm. That's something that happens over a long period of time. That's a long-term project. For sure. Now, the good news about that, by the way, is that it's the last thing to go away. <laughs> yes. And so, so, so once you've built that base, it takes a long time for it to go away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, I, I still feel like today at age 43, I'm reaping the benefits of the aerobic base that I built in my late teens and early 20s. Yeah. Um, uh, it doesn't ever entirely go away, I feel like. And so so that's the good news. It takes a long time to build, but once it's built, it's like an Egyptian pyramid, man. It sticks around. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and to your point, it works kind of both ways. Not only has it stuck with you for, you know, 20 years or so, mm-hmm. but then when you get hurt, it's right. still there, right. you know, um, yeah. to some degree. Yeah, I'll, I'll have, I'll have, I'll, it will take me less time to get back to, to mm-hmm. somewhere close to where I was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, just to give folks an idea of how long it t- can take to build up the aerobic elements, it's some have estimated seven years of dedicated, right. you know, inten- intense training of running every day. Mm-hmm. Some have said as many as 14 or 15. Yeah. So that gives you an idea of how, you know, how long we can continue to build and continue to improve. That's one of the beauties of our sport is yeah. we can continue to get better for a long period of time. We can take that long-term view yeah. and say, all right, when you, you know, when you run with ITL or when you, when you join our group, we can take you know a long-term view and have six-month, twelve-month, and eighteen-month goals. We're not going to just turn and burn. Yeah, you know, in the since I'm a masters runner, I pay much more attention to the masters ranks these days. And some of the best masters runners, so people between the ages of forty and fifty, mm-hmm. are people who didn't start running until their thirties. Yep. Um, and and so they they have had seven to ten years to build up that aerobic base, and mm-hmm. they've built it, um, but they don't have the twenty years before that of you know stress on their body yeah and so so they have a young so-called runner's age right um but they're but they're they're you know in their mid-40s and they've they've now they're hitting their peak 10 years after they started running mm-hmm. you know um so yeah yeah very good so the next one mm-hmm. um next one we'll talk about is 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 lactate threshold um now lactate threshold is is an interesting thing and you hear a lot about 
lactic acid and lactate and that sort of thing. And there's there's all sorts of like terrible misunderstandings of what what it actually is. I'm here to tell you, lactic acid, lactate is not your enemy. That's um, exactly right. Um, lactate is something that's produced every single time you exercise at any sort of intensity. In fact, if I were to stand up and walk across the room, I'd probably produce some very low level of lactate here. Um, but your body, when it's trained or as you train it, it gets better at clearing that lactate or that lactic acid out of your blood um, such that it can continue to, to operate. Um, in, in some ways, if once, once you cross your so-called lactate threshold, it actually can even turn it into fuel. And so it's not, not your enemy. It, it can be potentially a friend, but I'm getting way upset of myself here. So, so um, lactate accumulates in your blood as a byproduct when you are running at a particular or at any intensity. Your body, if you're running at a low intensity... Um, or you're riding at a low intensity, is able to clear out that lactate very efficiently. It's able to, to, to continue to get it out of your blood um, such that it never compromises your performance. Because you can use lactate as a fuel source once you run out of oxygen, but it's not as efficient as a fuel source or anything else like that. Um, now, um, lactate threshold is basically the, the, the point at which you are no longer able to clear the lactate out of your blood. And your body has to switch over from mostly fueling you by, by oxygen through that aerobic system that we were just describing to starting to fuel you through other things, mm-hmm. namely in this, this, this instance, lactate. Um, and at that point, it becomes much harder and you start breathing much more heavily. I think most people are kind of familiar with that, that point at which suddenly it goes to getting hard. Some mm-hmm. of the things get really hard. That's because you've crossed your lactate threshold. Um, now... What you want to be able to do over time is to be able to run faster and farther before you cross your lactate threshold, before you cross over from using oxygen for, for primarily for, for your fuel to using lactate primarily for your fuel. And the way that you do that is by doing um, workouts at lactate pace, uh, lactate threshold pace, LT pace. Sometimes it's called tempo pace. Mm-hmm. Um, in cycling, they call it functional threshold power or pace. Um, and then sometimes triathletes, because that's so well-known as FTP in cycling, sometimes they'll use that even for running as well. Um, all sorts of different names for this, but it's all talking about the same thing. And it's basically kind of that comfortably uncomfortable place um, that you could hold for about 50 to 60 minutes. Mm-hmm. So if somebody said, go out and run as hard as you possibly can for 60 minutes, that would be about your tempo pace. If you do that for four minutes or five minutes... It's not that tough. Now, it's de- certainly faster than your, your, your zone two endurance space. It's certainly faster than what you're going to do your long runs. But running five minutes for that, it's not really all that tough. You, you, you can handle that pretty well. Um, even doing like 25 minutes at that pace, it's hard, but, but you, can, you can handle it okay. You're not going to be wiped out afterwards. Um, it's the pace that you can hold for about 50 to 60 minutes. You can do that via tempo runs. You can do that v- via cruise intervals, anything else like that. Now, over time, you combine the endurance that Patrick was just talking about with lactate threshold work, um, and that creates what some people call muscular endurance. It's that ability to produce at a fairly high level for a long time. It's what other people call stamina. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's it's uh, that idea that you're 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 able to run kind of hard for a longer period of time. Um, and so that's that's whenever I, I say, okay, we're going to do a tempo run or we're going to do imp, uh, repeats at tempo pace or three by 10 minutes at tempo pace, it's pushing that lactate threshold farther. It's, it's 
training you to run faster without switching, without crossing that electric threshold, without switching from from oxygen to lactate. Um, what else do you have to say about that? Yeah, and it's very interesting because you know I, th- I think maybe in the '90s there was a lot of misconceptions about what lactate threshold was, what lactate is, mm-hmm. and what lactic acid is. Mm-hmm. Right, a lot of people would run a hard you know, run or a hard half marathon, and then two or three days later, they'd still be sore, and they'd say, right. oh, it's because there's a buildup of lactic acid. Right. But then they came to discover, no, it really was tiny muscle tears and inflammation. Right. Yeah, lactic acid is completely gone out of your body within half an hour of you finishing the race. Yeah, uh, it's yeah, remarkable. It's, yeah, it's, it's not leftover lactic acid that's the soreness. It's, it's those, those micro tears in your muscles. So that has certainly been, so for those of you who maybe have been in endurance sports for a long time, you may have had coaches tell you a while ago, that's what would cause soreness, but it, they've actually found that's not the reason. Mm-hmm. So that's you know one certainly interesting piece of uh, news. You know, you know, in two thousand twelve, two thousand yeah, two thousand twelve during the Olympic Games during the Olympic triathlon, they had a color commentator and and she was talking about the athletes. And there was this one athlete that went by the camera, and the athlete's skin was very red. It was a sunny day, and she probably had sunburn. And the color commentator, who's supposed to be the expert on the race and all that sort of thing, who herself had been an Olympian said, oh, you see how red her skin is? That's from the lactic acid that's coursing through her body. What? Yeah. I mean, my wife and I still joke about that because we both looked at each other and we're like, what? Is, what? Lactic acid doesn't change the color of your skin. Like, just what a ridiculous that's thing to unreal. say. That's unreal. Oh, yeah. Um, but it's, it speaks to those, those misconceptions about what lactic acid and, and what lactate and what the lactate threshold actually is. Yeah, and I would say of, of the four systems we were talking about today, this is the commonly most misquoted, misunderstood there is. I mean, some people, I remember I was talking to somebody that said he did a 13-mile tempo run. <laughs> and I thought, wait a minute. Uh, yeah. Our race pace, 13. Well, holy smokes, you are rolling. Exactly, yeah. You're, 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 there's an A to Desi. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, you know, it's, it's, but it's funny that you say that. So I'm glad you said that because, um, because the word tempo, for example. So that word. When, I, when we in ITL talk about the word tempo pace, we're talking about lactate threshold, that pace mm-hmm. that you could hold for 50 to 60 minutes. Hansen's, which yes. is a really respectable, well-known coaching program, um, you know the Hanson brothers. Um, they refer to tempo. They, they talk about tempo as marathon pace, mm-hmm. and so so they will say, "Oh yeah, you're supposed to do a 13 mile tempo run." What they mean is you're supposed to do a 13 mile run at marathon pace. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not. I, they're unique in that. Yeah, <laughs> like they're the only people I found that refer to 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 a marathon pace run as a tempo run. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so I think they're an outlier as far as that goes. But it, but it, but it speaks to okay. That's. That's the way that different people use the word tempo. Hal Higdon, who's mm-hmm. you know well known in running circles, yep. um, real old school coach. Um, he when he talks about doing a tempo run, he actually thinks that you should start around marathon pace and finish around 10k pace. And so ultimately, you average about tempo pace, mm-hmm. right? That pace you could hold for 50 to 60 minutes. Um, but he actually thinks that there should be faster elements in there as well. Yeah, that's interesting. And that also brings to another point. One question I know I've heard a lot of people say is, well, how can tempo pace be consistent from a 10 minute run to a 30 minute run mm. you know because it wouldn't wouldn't the, the build-up change as you kind of progress through the run mm-hmm. and the, the kind of the, the answer to that is what you're trying to do is you're trying to hit that point mm-hmm. where your body can't quite clear out mm-hmm. as much as it's producing mm-hmm. so you obviously can't do it for very long maybe a very e- efficient runner like mm-hmm. i think in your peak you could do 40 minute tempo mm-hmm. runs that's, that's extre- about it that's extreme yeah. and that's like you could do that Right at peak condition, 
mm-hmm. you know, after years and years of training. Yeah. But for most folks, it's 15 to 20 minutes at, at tempo pace. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you start... After that, you're starting to race. Yeah, you're starting to race, and you're starting to um, really train other systems at that yeah. point. Yeah, and, and, and you're, you're just... You're just you're working too hard for a workout. It's going to take you long to recover and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, remember, this is 50 to 60 is, and it's everything you got for 50 to 60. You're, like, drained at the end of that 50 to 60 minutes, right? Right. Starfished at the starting line. Exactly. Or the finish line. Starfished. Yeah. <laughs> oh, like spread out? Yeah. Oh, right on. Um, yeah, and, and so, and it's worth repeating, too, that, that and I kind of referred to this, but, but um, is that this is also, in cycling, it's referred to as your functional threshold power. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, just this past weekend, as a matter of fact, um, somebody was complaining on Facebook, uh, an ITL athlete was, was, saw that there was a ride that they did, or that somebody else did on, um, on, uh, on Trainer Road that ended with 28 minutes at 97%, which is hard. Twenty eight percent. I mean that that's that's super. That's that that's big and tough at the end. And she's like, "Oh my god, I would totally puke." I was like, "No, you can presumably do over an hour at ninety seven percent. That's not even a hundred percent, right?" And so, no, you wouldn't puke at the end. You would puke if you did an hour at that. But but this makes for for a hard finish to a workout. Um, but but it's not at all undoable, you know. Right. Um, and so, so yeah, your functional threshold power, 100% of your functional threshold power, those of you who are cyclists and triathletes and you use functional threshold power, 100% is that, is that tempo pace. It's what you can hold for 50 to 60 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I'm saying that and you're like, there's no way I could hold my FTP for 50 to 60 minutes. Well, then your FTP is probably set a little bit too high. <laughs> and that's another great point. I th- so th- when, tr- when trying to tr- go on these tempo runs, when training your, your lactic th- threshold and clearance – it's important to run. If you're not sure where it is, it's better to run a little bit too slow than a little bit too fast. Think about it like as if you're playing a game of 21. It's better to have a 19 than a 22. Because <laughs> once you go over, you kind of bust. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of one important point. If you're getting to the end of the workout thinking, I'm not so sure about this. Right, right. It's, it's better to back off and get 97% of the benefits than to go over and, and, and yeah. bust, so to speak. It's funny, you know... Um, uh, uh, Martin, um, Dan Martin, the the um, the pioneer of of V dot testing and all yes. that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, pretty much all of these things have a range. And mm-hmm. so, let's say like your lactate threshold is say five forty to five fifty five. That's the range, mm-hmm. right? Depending on terrain and depending on on conditions, depending on the amount of fatigue you're bringing in, and all that sort of thing. So, if it's five forty to five fifty five, that's the range. He always says, run as slow as you possibly can within that range. So mm-hmm. if it's 540, 555, hit 555 mm-hmm. um, because you shouldn't do any more than what you need to do to train the system. Otherwise, you're risking being overtired or starting to dip into other systems and all that sort of thing instead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And another important thing to uh, to think about is when you think about all these systems, really. Not Dan Martin. Jack Daniels. I'm sorry. Dan Martin's a Irish cyclist. My bad. Jack Daniels. I don't know. I knew I was saying the wrong name. and I, As soon as Patrick starts speaking, I, I, I remember what it is. My bad. Jack Daniels, not Dan Martin. Thank you. Um, but one thing about all these systems is that we're different. You can't just say, okay, I race this marathon time at Chicago, therefore my tempo pace is this, my aerobic endurance is this, my VO2 max is this. We can look at the average, like the average person who finishes in this marathon pace and this 5K t- pace, they would hit these um, different systems at these paces. Right. And, we, so you and, have we, to, and we do that. Yeah. yeah if some, if, if, when, we, when we do a test mile on the track, we say, okay, well, that means this is what your, your tempo pace is. Mm-hmm. But the point you're about to make. 
there is some individual variance. So think about that when you're doing this, and we'll touch on this a bit more at the end. So when is a good time? Go ahead and say what you said about yourself. So yeah, so I'm actually a perfect example. Um, so my lactic threshold is terrible when you look at compare it to my race times, 5K time, 10K time, half marathon time, and marathon time. It is comically bad. <laughs> so I can tell you, when I was in high school, and I was a 15-year-old little ball of acne and anxiety, um, I was gunning for Allstate to be you know, one of the top runners in the state, and I would finish 8th or 9th at like a, a big-time meet with all the top runners from the state, and then we'd do a tempo run, and I'd be 8th on the team, mm-hmm. my own high school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being a high schooler, of course, you know, when you're at the peak of your intellectual and secure, <laughs> you know, emo- you're very emotionally secure. When you know everything. Right. Um, you know, I would just think, oh, my gosh, I'm doing something wrong. Maybe I'm not giving enough effort. Well, right. I need to wear a different shirt. Maybe I need to do different shoes. Like, I, you know, I must be doing something wrong to I cause need, myself yeah. to do so poorly on these tempo run runs. Harder. Yeah, I need to run harder. Yeah. And then eventually we discovered in college when, we, when I did a VO2 max test and just over-experienced that, I just wasn't very good at the lactic threshold. That was a, a component of running, a system of endurance athletics that I was just very poor at. Right. It's, some, it's something you can train, mm-hmm. but you can only improve yourself so much. So it was very interesting how yeah. during tempo runs, if you saw me on a tempo run, you'd think, oh, this guy's eh. But then it, it just didn't even compare and to then, my then, race then, times. Then you destroy him in a 5K. Right. Because, because LT is not as important as 5K as it is for other things exactly and that's why like when i look at the age um you know grade calculators and race calculators it i'm never on the line if i if i input my 5k time the marathon time they spit out is gonna you know be off cue Mm -hmm. conversely if i give them the marathon time my 5k time is that they give me is not going to be anywhere close to the mark right right yeah and that's and that's super important and this is this is you know something we'll reiterate once we get done talking about these last two systems here but but different people do have have different strengths um and that's in part natural stuff Mm -hmm. um and it's in part what you've done throughout the course of your career Mm -hmm. if you spent your entire year or your entire career doing tempo runs you're probably not going to be super strong in VO2 max stuff if you've spent your entire uh, career doing quarter repeats you're not going to be great at tempo runs um and so um, I always say, and lots of people always say, train your weaknesses and race your strengths. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you're not very good at, at tempo runs, um, uh, you need to do them. Yep. And, and you, you need to work on that system. That's low-hanging fruit that you can actually improve yourself pretty significantly by, by, by actually doing something new. Um, and this is, by the way, um, and, and not to overplug ourselves here, but this is something that a coach does for you. Mm-hmm. Um, a coach can, can look at what you've always done and can say, okay, you're missing this big component. And I'm going to force you to do it now and hold you accountable to it. Mm-hmm. Whereas left to your own devices, you'll probably keep on doing what you've always done because you suffer from um, the, the the mental hurdles that it yeah. would take for you to do something new. You that, know, That's right. That's right. right. So the moral of the story is... Don't be like 15-year-old Patrick. <laughs> Don't be, you know, an adolescent about it. If you're having if you're consistently having trouble with a certain type of workout, learn from the feedback your body is providing. Yeah. Talk to your coaches. Let yeah. them know how and what you're feeling. That's what they're there for. They get it. They know that these different workouts are tapping into different systems mm-hmm. and they know that different runners have different strengths. You know, just to say, you know, this person is a fast runner or, you know, whatever, 
it's overly simplistic. You have to look at what are the different skill sets they bring to the table, mm-hmm. and you have to kind of use the feedback you get in practice to increase your self-awareness as a runner and as an athlete. Right on. Yeah, here at the bridge, it's worth saying, talking about 15-year-old Patrick as a runner, There's a, there, there are baseball cards on Patrick's refrigerator of when he played Tucker baseball as a, what, 10-year-old? Yeah. And they have his stats on the back where it says, three foot eight, yeah. 39 pounds, Patrick Ollinger, yeah. left field. <laughs> and the best part is we actually fudged the numbers because I was playing football in the fall, so they were like, we got to boost it up to like 30-something. Like, yeah. You can't advertise up. just that's how a, tiny you are. Let's round it up to the closest 38. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Tell us about VO2 max. VO2 max. Um, so we already talked about aerobic endurance. VO2 max is aerobic capacity, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's kind of that ceiling you can hit. Um, it refers to the maximum amount of oxygen an individual can utilize during intense exercise. So it's your lungs' ability to take in oxygen, your heart's ability to pump that oxygen-rich blood with each beat, and then your cells' mitochondria's ability to utilize that oxygen provided by the heart and lungs, right? And it's kind of the ceiling. If the capacity is like how long can you go, how efficiently can you use it for a long period of time, mm-hmm. the VO2 max is do you have that V8 engine to rev up to... Mm-hmm. 100 miles an hour, so to speak. And can you get that blood pump in and that, that oxygen to the muscles very quickly and efficiently? Right. Um, if you have a high VO2 max, your heart can pump a large amount of blood with each beat, and your circulatory system can efficiently deliver that blood to your working muscles. Mm-hmm. Now, um, VO2 max is generally most important for, or more important towards 5Kers than it is for marathoners for very obvious reasons because in the 5K, that's really when you're kind of going for the goal and you're pumping a lot and your muscles are really having to work to drive to the finish line. But VO2 max is still important for uh, marathon runners because when you're running a marathon, if you're running at maybe 70% of your capacity, if, if your maximum is much higher, then that 70% is obviously a much greater speed, right. which you can carry. Um, so that's kind of the, the basic of VO2 max. And I would say VO2 max may be second to lactate threshold in terms of most misunderstood concept. It became a very popular term. I said in the late 90s or so, once they realized, hey, we can measure this, right. it could become a quantifiable number we can stick to athletes and to and, you know, endurance um, athletes in general. And then it almost became yeah. comical. I mean, there were even studies produced that said VO2 max, not as good a predictor of 5K time as 5K time trial, which is <laughs> complete. I mean, not shocking at all. The actual measurement of the right. skill set is... Right, right. Yeah, and your, your VO2 max... Um, you know, your VO2 max, it should be said, that that's, that's generally, like we said, that lactate threshold is that pace that you could hold for 50 to 60 minutes. VO2 max is like eight minutes. Yes. Um, and so, so you know, you can, just from that alone, you can you can gather how much harder and how much faster this is than, than your lactate threshold pace. Now, side note on that, you shouldn't spend a whole lot of time in between those two things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if, you're, if you're going faster than lactate threshold but not all the way to VO2 max uh, pace... Okay, you're kind of drawing on both of those systems, and that's good. But at the same time, you're not really developing either one of them to their fullest, and that's bad. Yes. Um, and so, so when, whenever we talk about like making the easy days easy and the hard days hard, well, the easy days are supposed to be easy because you want to be fully taking advantage of that time to build your endurance. Well, the hard days are supposed to be hard because you want to be fully taking advantage of that time to build your VO2 max and not instead drawing on other systems. Um, you, you, you want to be building your VO2 max. So anyway... Um, 
And, but um, go ahead. And some classic workouts for kind of building the VO2 max are like 400 repeats, mm-hmm. uh, hill repeats. It is you have one to two minutes of intense effort and then a minute or two of rest. Mm-hmm. Right. So what you're doing is you're kind of you're having to rev up that engine and really kind of motor around the track, so to speak. Yeah. And you give yourself enough time to recover and then kind of work that system again with another lap. Yeah. So if you're kind of wondering, hey, am I somebody? You know, what system am I good at? If you've noticed that you are just torching the 400 meter repeats, that's VO2 max, and so you can probably, you know, say to yourself, okay, this is one of my, this is my strongest set, or maybe right. a system that I'm disproportion- disproportionately good at. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas like the lactate threshold, that's more tempo runs, cruise intervals, steady state runs, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's uh, two other things I'll mention about, it, and Patrick might be about to mention one of these things. So. One is that, that we tend to measure VO2 max. As he mentioned, it's a measure of, the, of your maximum oxygen uptake. So, so that's you know, what VO2 max means is it's your maximum oxygen uptake. So sometimes you'll hear that term, mm-hmm. uh, your maximum. What, what's, your, what's your oxygen uptake? Well, they're talking about your VO2 max. So again, mm-hmm. terminology, different people use different terms. Mm-hmm. Um, but they tend to measure that in, in uh, liters per minute. Um, and so, so uh, they tend to give a number that's somewhere between, say, 40 and 90. Um, and, and then based on that number, they can say, okay, well, if this is what your VO2 max is, this, this gives you this particular potential to, to run a 5K at this pace, a marathon at this pace, all that sort of thing. And so you'll hear different people talk about, well, my VO2 max is 61. Well, my VO2 max is, is 45. Oh, well, well, um, Rafael Nadal's VO2 max is, is 82 or something like that, right. which, by the way, it is. Is it really? Um, yeah, it's, he has a super high VO2 max, um, and that's one of the reasons why he's so good at clay court tennis. Interesting. Um, yeah, and because that, that requires more from you aerobically, um, and that's the reason why he's been the best player, one of the best players in history at clay court tennis. And to provide some context, so he's an 82. The highest, rec- Some of the highest ever recorded were Steve Prefontaine at 84 yeah. and Lance Armstrong, who was also at 84, just yeah. to give you an idea of how high that 82 is. Yeah, they have some, they have some, some uh, the highest ones I've seen are like cross-country skiers, mm-hmm. have them like up to about 90 or something like that. That's incredible. Now, now it's worth saying too, um, on the other hand, Frank Shorter, who was a gold medalist in the marathon in the 1972 Olympic Games, um, and by the way, in the last podcast, I said 1974 Munich Games, it's 1972 Munich Games. Anyway, um, so in the 1972 Munich Games, he won the gold medal um, in the uh, in the marathon. Um, he actually has a much lower VO2 max than, say, Steve Prefontaine. Mm-hmm. But if the two of them raced, they would be very close to one another, and that's because more goes into, ultimately, your performance than simply your VO2 max. Right. Your VO2 max, as we've said all along, is just one system. Your endurance, your lactate threshold, your economy, those things matter too. Right, and, and Prefontaine was kind of the VO2 max monster. Right. Frank Shorter was the lactate threshold. I mean, that's why he was yeah. so good in the marathon. Yeah. I mean, he had historically great um, tempo runs where he would just kind of keep going and going and, and did not seem to kind of elevate his heart rate beyond sure. you know 80 to 85% or so. Well, and then today you see like Mo Farah, Mm-hmm. Uh, Mo Farah has done he's moving up to the marathon sometime mm-hmm. over the course of the next couple of years but he actually did the London Marathon as a debut marathon a couple of years ago and really did not perform as magnificently as people thought he would mm-hmm. um, and certainly was not nearly as dominant as he has been on the track and that's because he's more of a VO2 max monster rather than a, than a, than a lactate threshold guy um, you know, the other thing I want to say about this too is that VO2 max of all the various systems this is the one that fades when you get older 
Yes. So when you start getting over 40, this is the one that starts to disappear. And so if you read books like Fast Over 50 and stuff like that, one of the things that they will say is that you need to be doing VO2 max stuff Mm -hmm. a lot. And in fact, most runners and most endurance athletes tend to do the opposite. As they go older, they tend to want to do longer, steadier stuff and more lactate threshold stuff when in fact it's their VO2 max stuff that they need to continue to work on. Because that's what they're losing through aging. They're losing that maximum oxygen uptake as they're getting older. And so as contradictory as it might seem, um, once you get to be 50, you need to be doing quarters more. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if you're training for longer races, um, you need to be doing hill repeats more. Um, because that's the system that, that, is the, that you're losing most rapidly as a result of age. And you can actually slow down the rate at which you're losing it if you continue to work it. Yeah, and and, the, and when you look at the numbers, it's it's pretty staggering. I mean, I've... I've seen some numbers that say you lose roughly three points per 10 years, which yeah. that's kind of hard to quantify. But just to give you an idea, the average 35-year-old male has a VO2 max of 45. The average female is 40. Mm-hmm. You lose three over 10 years. It's, I ten, mean, that's, it's more than 10%. Right. That's 10%, a very yeah. significant amount yeah. of, um, you know, of skill set that you're losing there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's exactly right. That really is kind of the, one of the bigger... Um, skill sets that you lose as you age. So it's important to kind of keep tapping that bucket or to, or to kind of um, hit that aspect of training even harder. And then the other thing you tend to lose as you age is the last of the, of the four buckets, uh, and that's running economy. Mm-hmm. Um, so running economy is, by definition, it's, it's how much energy are you using to run. Mm-hmm. Um, um, how hard is your body having to work for you to run at a particular pace? Um, and the best way to kind of picture it is to picture those Olympic runners that you've all watched before and how effortlessly it looks like they're running. Mm-hmm. You know, picture Elliot Kipchoge running close to two hours for a marathon, running under 440 per mile for 26.2 miles, and he looks just so smooth and so effortless as he does. It's because he has extremely, extremely good economy. And so, if your arms are swinging all over the place and your knees are coming up too high and your feet are swinging way out to the sides and all sorts of things like that, that uses energy that over time is not being used to power you forward. Instead, it's being used to try and control your body. Um, and so, so you can improve your running economy. You use less effort at a particular pace and you can instead, less energy at a particular pace, and you can use that energy instead to pick up the pace. Mm-hmm. Right, um, So there's a few different things that you can do to improve your economy. Um, the reason why it tends to fade as you get older, by the way, is because your muscles become tighter and shorter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one thing, obviously, you can do um, is that you can do more mobility work and more strength work. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I've even seen so much as to people to say that the reason why older people are slower than younger people is not because of VO2 max, not because of all this other stuff. It's simply because your, your muscles lose elasticity over time. Yes. And so if you can do things to, to keep your muscles more elastic over time, um, that will improve your economy. So strength work is a big one. Um, now, side note on strength work. If you go to and you get gait analysis... And let's say, say that somebody watches you run or you film yourself running and you say, oh, wait, my left foot turns a little bit to the outside every single time I run. Um, and so I would be more efficient if I could turn that foot more forward, right? Um, a lot of people are like, well, I'll start turning my foot forward. That's not the way to go about it. <laughs> yeah, you're almost forcing your, an injury on yourself. Right, yeah. No, you're, you're, you're asking for an injury to do that. Um, and, and the gait guys will tell you that's not the way to go about it. A lot of people go to form clinics and they'll say, oh, well, you know, my arm is not doing the right thing. And so I'm just going to force my arm to do the right thing. Well, you force your arm to do something that's going to change your hips, that change your hips, you're going to change your feet, change your feet, you're talking about an injury. Um, and so what you have to do is you have to say, okay, well, why is that foot turning out that way? 
And if it's turning out that way because my glute on that side is tight, or because my quad on that side is tight, or my, my hip on the other side is tight, that's what you address. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or my hips are weak. Um, or, or my shoulder is weak because I had some, some issues related to a bike crash or something. Um, you fix it by strength work and mobility work. You don't fix it by just forcing a change in your natural running gait. Um, and I think that's something that right now in endurance sports is very commonly misunderstood. Yes. I think people will get gain analysis or they go to a form plan and say, oh, this is how you're supposed to run. Well, let me just force myself to run that way. Right. No. Um, which also the idea of you're supposed to run a particular way is just inaccurate. Um, which leads to another thing. Um, so another way to improve your economy via running is, is by spending time. Yeah. By putting in time, um, your body will efficiently learn how to run because it has to. (laughs) Yeah. You essentially embarrass your body into saying, all right, we don't want to do that again. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so, so, so your body will actually learn to be more efficient over time. Um, and that means if you want to be efficient when you're going fast, you need to do some fast running. Um, and that includes, of course, doing strides at the ends of runs, as, as I've talked about in other podcasts before. Um, if you want to be a more efficient cyclist, you need to get a good fit. Um, the way that your body moves on the bike can be mechanically altered um, by, by uh, changing the location of your pedals, the location of your, your bars, and the location of your seat. Uh, and so, so you can get a good fit, and that will certainly do it. Um, you can change your economy in the kitchen, by which I mean... You can get a little bit lighter. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Patrick and I, we've talked about this a lot, and we're, we're, we're loath to try and say, oh, okay, there's a direct correlation between low weight and fast times. Um, because that's not always true. There is a point of diminishing returns. Uh, however, um, if you could stand to lose a few pounds, if you lost them, you would become much more efficient. Um, you'd probably become less injury prone as well, by the way. But, um, but you would become a more efficient runner. And an- another quick side note, and this could take us off on a different tangent, so I want to keep it contained. In many ways, the best way to, to improve your economy via how you change your eating habits is almost passively, right? Mm-hmm. If you go in and say, I will never eat ice cream again or I'll never have my favorite Coca-Cola again, they've shown that that lasts for two weeks and then you're right back to drinking Coca-Cola again. So sometimes the passive route is almost the best route to say, okay, maybe I'll, I'll just eat maybe one less plate or maybe I'll just mm-hmm. start tracking what I'm eating. Mm-hmm. And then naturally I'll say, you know... I'd rather not write down that I had a cookie today, so right. I'm just not going to eat that. The, the, and then over time, it starts to build up. This is not something where we're advocating a hard and fast, what they call like the Atkins diet or right. anything no, like certainly that. certainly not. Um, yeah, and then as I've said on this podcast before, the one thing that every successful diet has in common, logging your food. Yep. Yeah, so if somebody says to me, oh, well, I have a couple extra pounds. What can I do? You know, Should I start eating, eating low carb? No. Um, by the way, you shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and the word carb has come and created this whole devil thing, which it's not. Um, but that's the tangent you didn't want to go on. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, if you start writing it down, it, it profoundly changes the way you approach food. I'm not going to have that handful of trail mix because I don't want to take the time to write it down. Right. Um, or you look at your log at the end of the day and you're like, holy crap, I had 12 Diet Cokes. Um, President yeah. of the United States drinks 12 Diet Cokes a day. Did you see that? I did see that. <laughs> um, so perhaps he should be logging a little bit. Yeah. Um, anyway, so the, the final thing that, as far as economy goes um, is shoes. And we talked about, I, I talked about this before Patrick came on um, a couple of uh, podcasts ago on the race prep one. Um, that, that the lighter your shoes, um, within safety reasons, obviously, but the lightest shoes you can wear will increase your economy. Um, 
to about five ounces. You get below five ounces, and actually it's going to decrease your economy a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so as close as you can get to five ounces, the more economical you are going to be. However, of course, the closer you get to five ounces, the more you're potentially sacrificing cushioning and other things you might need in your shoes as well. And so there's some danger there. But lighter shoes equal more economical running. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So all of those things can, can ultimately uh, lead to, to you spending less energy um, mm-hmm. on uh, things other than pushing you down the road. Right, right. And the biggest takeaway is that you know a lot of people come from like a, a ball sport where they say, all right, you throw a football this way. So grab the laces with your pinky and your ring finger and do it. You know, mm-hmm. Running it doesn't work that way. You can't yeah. instruct your body to, at the end of a race, run this way. Usually your body is running a certain way. Your, your leg's kicking out or your... Or, or, or your your head is turned to the side because there's some kind of muscle that's been overworked Head's and causing to the side. you. Yeah, exactly. I wouldn't that's, know anybody that does that. That's, that's Patrick's thing. Um, because there's some kind of muscle that is needing compensation. So you can't then say, "All right, I'm going to just pop my head up artificially." That almost causes more strain than mm-hmm. what it's worth. Yeah. The way you improve economy is just over time. Mm-hmm. You know, you just you stay on your feet, you keep running fast, and then, like I said, eventually your body kind of. Mm-hmm. makes the necessary adjustments mm-hmm. as it's able to. And, and if you want to be more aggressive about improving your economy, which is a good thing, if you're not an economical runner, then you do it through strength work, through yep. mobility work, yeah. through, through, through your diet. You right. don't do it by, by consciously changing your form. I will point my f- toe this way. Exactly. Right, right. right. I will start landing on my forefeet rather than my heels um, because forefoot runners are, are not more efficient than heel strikers, um, you know, despite what, what, what some folks will tell you. Um, so, yeah. So there's economy. So endurance, lactate threshold, VO2 max, and economy, everything you have ever wanted to know. Final thoughts? Sure. So just to do a quick recap. So endurance is like, so it just snowed here in Atlanta. Endurance is like the network of highways that you have that gets the blood and oxygen to your muscles, right? For those of you who have been in Atlanta when the highway shut down, <laughs> you know exactly what it can feel, what kind of gridlock that can happen to mobility here on a large kind of economic scale. The same thing's happening within your body, within your muscles. All right. And then lactate threshold. Uh, so to recap that, that is, that is that place at which your body crosses over into efficiently or from efficiently using oxygen into using less efficiency lactate for uh, for for fuel, um, it's something you train via tempo runs, and and it's that pace you can hold for about fifty to sixty minutes. More important in your longer races. Yes. Then there's aerobic capacity VO2 max. That's the maximum amount of oxygen you can utilize during an intense exercise. So to go back to the kind of the highway metaphor. How many people can you cram to the stadium in a 30-minute time frame, so to speak? And then the smoothness of the road, if I'm going to borrow your, uh, your, 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 your metaphor. Um, the, whether you have your tires pumped up. You know, the, the amount of fuel that you are spending in your car as you are driving on those highways. Uh, that would be your economy. Um, uh, and there's all sorts of ways that you can improve that as well. Mm-hmm. And all of these are important, as we talked about before. If you find yourself struggling on a certain type of run or a certain type of workout, or you find that you really enjoy you know, 400 repeats or a certain type of run, use that as feedback. Talk with your coaches. Uh, That's what they're there for. Right on, right on. Thanks again, Patrick. Hey, thank you. And that brings us to the end of another installment of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Hook up with us online at Pleasant Podcast on Twitter. 
uh, go to our blog, mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com, where we sometimes put show notes, uh, and then hook up us with them on Facebook at facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Check out our sponsor, ITL Coaching and Performance, at itlcoaching.com. Uh, go on Twitter, at itlcoaching, or go on Facebook, facebook.com slash itlcoachingandperformance. Uh, don't forget our other sponsor, my wife, Casey, uh, facebook.com slash caseytravelplannermev. Uh, you can also find her at caseytravelplanner at gmail.com. That's K-A-C-I-E, travelplanner at gmail.com. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden, and we appreciate your listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.